Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624. Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. It is a very balmy afternoon in South Dakota. So not blustery. That's a change. Oh, it is blustery. Oh, it, it is. It was uh, 108 degrees Fahrenheit here with the wind. Um, but you know what? With the South Dakota wind, it doesn't feel that bad. It's hot. It just doesn't feel as bad as uh, back in Canada when it was that warm. It was just withering. Well, you've been into the U.S. for, what, a little over a year now or just coming up on a year? Just a little over a year. And what, so what do you think? A year in perspective, hindsight being 2020, still two thumbs up for the experience? Miss certain things? We are we are right where God wants us to be. It's a good answer, Steve. I'm sure of that. <laughs> I really like that answer. Hey, you can join us. We would love to have your voice be a part of the conversation. You can call us at 855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. You can email us live at asknoahshow.com. You can drop a question in the Geek Lab at geeklab.ninja. Message, questions, colon, linuxdelta.com. Steve, you ready to get into some feedback? Absolutely. All right. We'll start with an easy one. This is from Sleuth in the chat room. And the question is... How do you set a profile photo in HedgeDoc or Cody MD? And the answer to that is actually uh, kind of surprising, and that is it uses a service called Gravatar. So if you're familiar with Gravatar, essentially you upload your uh, avatar picture to Gravatar, and then any service that references Gravatar will look for that email address, the email that you signed up with. So in the case of your uh, self-hosted HedgeDoc, It'll reference Gravatar, look for that email address, and pull the profile picture in. I'm going to twist that question a little bit and say, Steve, what do you think about that from a privacy perspective? Eh, I mean, I don't care much about putting profile pictures. So, I mean, if you want to pull a generic picture off of a generic service, go ahead. But, I mean, I don't generally attach my headshots to things. Uh, that's a good answer. I don't either. I have a... Uh I have a little animation one that I use, but uh, anyway, that is the answer to that question of how you said it. You can't actually do it in HedgeDoc, so you'll do it from um, from Gravatar. Our first email comes in from Griffin. Griffin writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. Thanks for the great show. I have questions about different ways to set up a secure remote connection to my home network. I'm aware of the following choices. SSH, OpenVPN, TailScale, and FireZone.dev. What are the advantages or disadvantages of each method? What are the differences between each method? Are TailScale and FireZone similar applications? They look very interesting. What other alternatives are there? I currently SSH into my home network with port forwarding on my router. Well, the setup is relatively simple as compared to setting up an OpenVPN server. Is that as secure? I'm just looking for a simple, secure method to access files and applications from my home network. What do you recommend? Thanks. So, Steve... Let's start with what would you do if you woke up in Griffin's shoes? How would you get or how do you get access to your network when you're not on your network? I use OpenVPN that's built into PFSense, to be honest. Um, I I like that method a lot. And uh, TailScale would probably be my fallback. I've done SSH in the past, but um, yeah, I tend to I tend to prefer something a little I don't really want to say that SSH is insecure, but you have to do a lot to kind of secure it, like SSH guard and fail to ban and a bunch of different stuff like that to make sure that you're locking out people who are just going to bang on an open SSH server. I was told by, actually, it was a Red Hatter that said this, um, in an interview on this show, no less, you would, and I quote, you would be crazy to put a SSH server on the default port on the internet and then he stopped himself halfway through that sentence and said 
actually you'd be crazy to put SSH open on the internet, period, on any port. Um, and so like Steve was saying, they, there's people out there that will literally just run port scans and try to find things that are available on SSH, and then they'll just start knocking. Let me ask you this, Steve. Let's take it up a notch. So I've disabled root login. You have to use a username. And I've also disabled password authentication. But now it requires that a key file be present on my computer. Now, how, 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 do you, how do you reevaluate security there in that scenario? I still would put, I would definitely put SSH guard on, uh, maybe fail to ban. So when I had my public mail server, um, because it was a machine that I hosted on the internet, I had, I had to be able to get in somehow and it didn't seem prudent to have the, um, uh, you know, like the DRAC exposed to the internet. So I had SSH and so, um, I maintained like a, um, an Etsy deny host and failed to ban and all kinds of stuff. And it was constantly getting banged on. So, I mean, you can do that. And it was one of those things where uh, you had to, if if you got the user and the key, you still had to know which series, it could only change into one user. And like there was a series of users to get to something that was privileged. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still, it, it's, main, it's maintenance and it's a bunch of hassle and remember, you want to make it a hassle because you always assume somebody's going to get somewhere with something. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. I gravitate towards OpenVPN for one reason, and it is that, one, it is... Dis- well, I, I shouldn't say one reason. There's actually a few. But the biggest reason, in my estimation, to land on something like OpenVPN is it's designed for that purpose. The people at OpenVPN, when they designed the system, and same with the people at PFSense or OpenSense when they design the router, that's designed to be a front door to the network. And so because we know that people are going to knock on it, we've put all of these security parameters in place to where you have to have a certificate and you have to have a username and password and the CA expires every so often. So if even if somebody had gotten a hold of your certificate after a year or so, it wouldn't be useful to them. In all of these tooling is built into things like OpenVPN, and the same to a lesser extent is true of WireGuard. It is cryptographically just as secure, but there aren't as many user land tools to kind of help facilitate stuff. Um, the other thing I like about VPN, so from a security standpoint, that's, that's what I, I would use, and that's why. It's specifically designed to do that purpose. It's designed to be the front door to keep everybody else out and let you in. But the second thing is also true, and that is that because OpenVPN is specifically designed for this, it obfuscates a lot of the other things that you would have to work around with SSH. And so what I mean by that is, can you SSH into a server? Fine. And if you do SSH port forwarding, you can have kind of a little jump box and, and go around your network and do those kinds of things. And that'll work until you go to fire up, you know, the Plex app or the whatever. And having a traditional VPN setup means that when you connect to home, you go down to your little icon, you click on home, you wait for a little bit, you get the little shield. Okay, I'm connected. Now, you can browse your, browse your file server, you can send a print job to your printer, you can go look at your Plex server, you can go log into your virtual host, you can do all of the things that you would do as if you were sitting at your home, um, because it's designed for that. So, uh, would I run that on a home computer or a router? Doesn't really matter. OpenVPN is OpenVPN. Really, the router is just a, a stripped-down computer. Um, so it's probably going to do uh, the same thing. Um, is it bad to use SSH? Not necessarily, but you just want to make sure that you have things like SSH guard enabled. I would also keep a careful eye on your logs to see who's knocking. Our second email comes in from JJ. JJ writes in and says, hi, Noah and Steve. I was wondering if you've ever discussed Cloudflare, their free offering for self-hosting. I know one way to secure a home lab with public-facing services is with Cloudflare tunnels. The tunnels hide behind your home IP address and protect against most types of attack, like DDoS. I'm concerned that I'm concerned though because they decrypt and re-encrypt the TLS traffic on their servers. Is this really any better than hosting in the cloud? I know Cloudflare brags about their privacy, but how much would you trust them? Cloudflare offers many free services. Is there any other service that they offer that would be useful for a self-hoster? Thanks again, JJ. So, Steve, I guess I, 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 want, I want to dig into this. This is kind of an interesting question. Thoughts on thoughts on Cloudflare decrypting and re-encrypting TLS traffic? Yeah, tough one. 
um, I was thinking about this and was thinking, well, your your traffic is still encrypted to your backend, but it does mean that they could see what was going on. And I guess there's some reason for them to do that. Like, I mean, they they could try and do DPI and stuff like that, on, but that's really expensive. So it becomes a hmm. lot easier to um, sniff out malicious traffic if they do the the uh, the re-encryption. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't do something like... Uh, Nextcloud or anything that that is passing mm. important information. If it's just your website, eh, I mean it's meant to be public, right? Mm. And the the SSH or the SSL is more as a uh, a proof of identity, I suppose. Unless you're doing something where you're doing user management, mm. I probably wouldn't do it, to be honest. Yeah, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. I'm, I I get equally turned off by there's some companies that have boxes they'll put in that basically sit in between and, and mimic the SSL so that they can snoop traffic and stuff like that. And it's real popular in schools and the whole thing just kind of makes me uncomfortable. So I I would say I'd do a hard pass, but I it, it depends though. Like so, it depends on what you're what you're after, right? Because part of the reason that they they're probably doing the re-encryption is they probably have a, a WAF, a, a web application firewall. Hmm. And for that to be useful, you'd have to decrypt the traffic. So depends on what you're doing there, right? So um, if you're serving stuff, this is not necessarily um, the, aimed at the home labber, but rather um, businesses that can get behind it, I imagine. So depending on what your use case is, it might be worth it. If... if um, Having it's basically, I would think it's similar to having your web application firewall as a service for small to medium businesses that don't have uh, a person that is skilled in that that area. Sure. So you do you. Um, I if you I tell you what, if you go down this route, please write back and let me know what you did and how you did it. As you come across Cloudflare's privacy-respecting features, I'd be interested in hearing those two. I, people reference all the time that they brag about their privacy and how great they are. Blah, blah, blah. I would just like to hear some examples of what Cloudflare is doing to protect privacy and how that really works. I, I hear that cited a lot. Don't hear a whole lot of specifics. I know that they support encrypted DNS. I think that's great. I think there's probably some more information out there. I'd be interested in knowing what that is that drives other people to that. Our third email comes in from Patrick. Patrick writes in and says, option for power monitoring. No one, Steve. From the show where you were talking about having an out-of-the-box project that comes with a controller that is a server that you can run locally, and there's a company out of Colorado called eGage, I want you to know it's not open source, nor is it cheap. Still under $1,000 to get a high-quality monitor. It will even let you see the waveform of the voltage going into your house. It will store 30 years of data on the appliance and it is easy to get started with it's not cloud-based it's easy to interface with the api and he links to egage.net i will add that i know who this is and they are using it in a in a in a fairly large environment with some really great success so egage.net we'll link for you in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com so he says it's not cloud-based but right on their um Right on their website, it, there's a architecture diagram that talks about the power line communication that's attached to your router that goes out to a proxy server and then um, essentially is able to talk with your smartphone, tablet, computer, or whatever. So there's definitely some availability there. It's unclear as to whether or not it's actually firmly required or not. Yeah, I also wonder if maybe there's not a difference between the home side and the commercial side. I happen to know that the person that sent this in is using it on the commercial side, and I know that eGage supports both. But I, you're right. I don't know. They might have a they might have a cloud offering thing. Um, we could ask. It's always good to have other options. I wasn't aware of these sort of things, and I'm always interested. Um, I'd be curious to see. Do you know, is are these CT clamps? How is it doing this monitoring? That's a great question. I know when they had it installed that they 
that they had an electrician come out and do that. What the electrician did, I guess I don't know. Well, it says right here, CT and Rogowski, Rogowski coils. Mm, yeah. So, okay. So they are doing CT clamps. So there's mm-hmm. definitely, there's easier, like not easier, cheaper ways to do this locally. Like the, like the Emporia view, like I've bought where you can just flash ESP home on it to mm-hmm. keep it local. So, I mean, um, it might be good. I mean, it might be, it might be wonderful. So, just something to think about, I guess. Maybe the target audience for a product like this would be if it's something that you want to buy just off the shelf kind of a thing, or you need a brand that you can come in so you can present a bid to your boss or to your manager or whoever board and say, I want I want to have this monitoring. Maybe that's kind of the application there. Yep. It would make sense, right? Like I wondered whether the home audience was just, hey, you know, we're already doing this. Let's toss it out there. We might pick up a couple clients this way. Absolutely. Our fourth email, kind of similar to our third one, comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. Your show is great. I'm interested in learning more about power monitoring with Home Assistance and the Impora View 2 with custom firmware. Steve, with your setup, do you by chance have more than 16 breakers in one panel and solar? If so, how do you have your Impora View 2 connected? Is there a recommended or special setup and config for two Empora views running custom firmware in one panel? I saw this on the Empora site, and he links to it. What are the recommendations for monitoring solar panel fe- power feed? So, Steve, what say you? So, the solar power feed is a difficult question because it depends on how your solar installer has it set up. So, in my case, the solar panel powers one specific um, panel in my house. And everything that runs through there comes from the solar. Then I have a separate panel, and anything that's on that panel gets pulled directly off the grid. So I have my view uh, in that panel that that monitors the grid because my solar setup already came with CT clamps. So I already have the the generic like this much is coming off my roof, this much is how much the house is pulling off of the solar. Like I already have that coming in from the end phase system. Um, you you can put more than one Emporia view in a in a breaker box. You don't need to have monitor the the phases. So the phases are the big thick lines that are coming into the panel. You don't have to monitor those with both uh, clamps. You could if you wanted to, but you don't have to. So the the most important thing is for you to have each view has to have a a connection to each phase. So there's two phases that run into your panel, usually called phase A and B. And in a normal panel, if you look at the circuits on, say, the left side, the top one will be A, the bottom one will be B, and they alternate A, B, A, B. Mm. And the view has to have a connection to both A and B in order to sense the power that's going out over each phase in order for it to be able to sense things like voltage and stuff like that. So as long as you have that set up, and you are making sure that you're following the code in your area because code in my area says I can't have a low voltage device inside my panel. Yeah, that's. Um, and so I actually have a, a junction box sitting below my main panel, um, where the where the actual base of the Emporia view sits. Not an electrician, and I don't play one on TV, but I believe that's code everywhere in the U.S. That's National Electric Code, is you can't share conduit or boxes with low volt; they have to be separated. So yeah, there's there's things to consider there. Um, just just something that I did. Um, but yeah, you can put as many Emporia views as your box can fit. But I wouldn't recommend putting too many in there. Our fifth email comes in from Roger. Roger writes in and says, "I enjoyed your discussion about cell phones and privacy. Your point about location information gathered if your cell phone powered up is absolutely correct." Leaving your phone is one way of making tracking information less accurate. I personally like the idea of confusing the data broker and users of my location by using a silent pocket. And he links to slnt.com. A silent pocket is a Faraday cage for your wireless device. Simply slide your cell phone into the silent pocket before your trip from New York to Los Angeles and you mess with the algorithm. Best regards, Roger. So what stood out to me about this particular piece of feedback was literally after that episode, we sat down at the post show. We were kind of talking about it and Faraday cages came up and the the 
end conclusion of that discussion, if I was to if I was to summarize it in in five seconds or less, is there's no practical way to do that. And whatever you accomplish by putting something in a Faraday cage, you've basically thrown out the idea of having a mobile device to begin with. Putting that out there and as a disclaimer to open the discussion, I would then add to that by saying I've tried a couple of Faraday cages and or Faraday, you know, the little pockets and sleeves and stuff that say they, they block cellular signal on all the things. They don't work. The only one that I've seen worked is I had an opportunity to work uh, with, um, I, don't, I don't know how to say this, but an investigation of sorts. And as part of that, they had a box that they were using to prevent the phone from communicating. And it was like basically a chest size box that had a bunch of equipment so that you could interface to the phone while it was in the box. Uh, and that blocked all of the signals. And so my assumption was just, oh, Faraday cages work in theory, and if you have one built correctly, it works fine. The cheap ones you buy for $10 off of Amazon won't do that. This is, I've not tried it personally, so I don't know, but they range in price from $59 to $139 just for the phone sleeves, and then they have laptops and and bags and, uh, excuse me, backpacks and bags and such that you can put larger devices in. And I somewhat suspect that because this brand's entire thing is making high-quality Faraday cages and they seem to be priced uh, more than the 10 or $15 ones on Amazon, I suspect I would have had better luck with these. So I'm going to pick up a silent sleeve and I'm going to play with it because I do think being able to have a phone with me and have the opportunity to use it if I want to use it, but then otherwise stop it from communicating out to the world is a useful thing. I'm interested, Steve, in if you had a Faraday cage or sleeve that worked well, would it change your perception at all? Or is it still like, hey, if I have to put it in a Faraday cage, I can't use it. So what's the point? Um, It might change a little bit, maybe. Uh, But at the same time, if I'm not carrying it around, like if I'm putting it in the sleeve, then it's not going to be sitting in my pocket very well, most likely because I wear shorts all the time. So I have to imagine that's going to be a little bit bulky and or difficult which means Mm. i'd have to leave it in the car anyways i don't know um i'd be interested to see if directly close to it like within a couple of feet you could get a bluetooth signal for example then i would use it when i go running i just put my i have a phone that is like super old now and i just use it for podcasts and stuff like that doesn't have a sim card in it um but I connect to it over the Bluetooth with for my headphones, and if that would work, then I'd stick one in. I'd stick it in there and be done with it. That we'll have to try that when I when I get mine. I would say that if it does do that, kind of goes back on what they're trying to achieve, right? Because in, for my purposes, I wouldn't want somebody to be able to Bluetooth or NFC or anything else into whatever's in the pocket. Yeah, it depends, right? Whether or not it's just reducing the the breadth of the signal so that yeah. it couldn't like can't reach the cell phone towers, and be interesting to see. We'll find out. Anyway, SLNT will have a link for you in the show show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. That's where you'll find all of the articles and resources we use to create the show. And uh, without further ado, we'll head over to the Linux Newswire newsroom, where JT is standing by with the latest in Linux news. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. Linus Torvalds releases Linux 5.19 using Asahi Linux on an ARM-powered Mac. Firefox 103 is out. Linux Mint 21 has been released. GitGuardian has released the GG Canary project to identify dangers associated with open source software. Limit Theory, a now-canceled open-world space simulation game, has now released its code on GitHub as open source. Raptor Computing Systems has launched Arctic Turn as an open source BMC solution. Skywater and Google enable open source 90 nanometer silicon manufacturing. Mark Pearson, who leads Lenovo's company's Linux initiatives, has provided an update on Linux for their laptops and PCs, including 30 plus platforms for 2022 with Linux support. Linux 6.0 will have temperature monitoring for upcoming AMD CPUs and M-Weight for HPC customers. The Fedora project has recently decided to reject all code that is licensed under the CC0 Creative Commons Public Domain Dedication License. And lastly, VPN provider Atlas VPN has reported that new Linux malware became vastly more prevalent in the first half of 2022 compared to the first half of 2021 
the instances of new malware rose by almost 650% from January to June, from nearly 226,000 to nearly 1.7 million samples, the highest number ever recorded. Last week, we began a walk down an introduction to home automation, and there's still a ton of content to cover. And so we're going to pick up the thread where we left it last week. We're going to get into data metrics. We're going to get into some monitoring. And then Steve and I are going to talk a little bit about the specifics of, of the products that we use that make home automation work for us, make some models we like, things that we don't like. All of this, I want to make clear, is available to you via the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. So if we're going too fast, don't feel like you have to take notes down. Just head over to the show notes and take a look. We'll have a list of all of the products uh, that we reference. When you go to buy Z-Wave appliances, obviously there are, because it's a standard, there's a lot of companies that have adopted the Z-Wave standard. What ones do you like? And have you come across any that you don't like? I have not come across one Z-Wave device that I have regretted. Um, I like, so the AOTech devices are at a premium, but man, do they work good. I've got a an AOTech button that has, it's got four buttons on it and it sits in my, um, well, it sits somewhere in my house, let's just say. Um, and each button can do different things, whether you push and hold it, you double tap or, you know, just a single tap and they all do different things. Um, I really love that button. It's got, man, has it got range. I can walk all the way down three houses down to the, to the corner of the street and ha- still have it. Uh, I can still witness the effects of it. It, this little button's got a ton of range to it. Um, and as for the switches, I like, there's a, a GE brand where it has a motion sensor right in the light switch. And these things are fantastic. Those those motion sensors are crazy. They're they're also crazy annoying if if you get up. So my bedroom is about twenty five feet from the closest motion sensor, and that motion sensor turns on the LED strips um, that go down the stairs, so that if you're in the middle of the night or whatever, you don't trip and kill yourself. We have an ensuite bathroom, which is in the opposite direction of this motion sensor. And when I come back from the bathroom, I can sometimes trigger the motion sensor in the middle of the night, which turns those lights on, which you didn't mean to. Um, and this is at a 180 degree angle from the motion sensor. So they've got ridiculous range. They've, they can see, they can definitely see 180 degrees. Um, and I have never had a false positive with them. They just, wow. they're just fantastic. That really says something. Yep. I've, I've put one in every room that needs any kind of motion sensing. So I have been looking at a switch. Uh, it's a Z-Way switch. It's from a company called Innovelli and has a built-in. Uh, it, it, I, I believe it actually supports both Z-Wave or Zigbee. Um, but the thing that I like about it is by default, it just looks like a normal light switch. So it's a rocker switch. You push it up, it turns the light on, you push it down, it turns the light off. Three things that stand out to me that I really like, uh, or four things, really, that stand out to me that I really like. First thing is the price. You know, my Lutron switches are like upwards of $160 a piece. These are $45 a piece. The second thing I like about them is they're programmable on what you want it to do. So single click up does this, single click down does that, double tap up does this, double tap down does that, Triple tap up does this, triple tap down does that. Then there's an LED that's multicolored on the side. And so you can make the LED flash or you can make the LED turn a specific color and it can respond and give you some feedback about what's going on. Um, so though I, I would, I would probably add that to the catalog of things to consider, particularly if you're looking down, um, the, 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 the Z wave path of things. Now, I want to talk a little bit, or I wanted to get your thoughts a little bit on types of sensors and uh, control points. So you uh, have gone through and, as you said, automated everything so that you're not in the, the home assistant dashboard. My, uh, my method has been put it all in and either have a physical button that you can push or log into the web UI. And so that's my control point. Some people would say they're listening to this and they're saying, hey, I really want a voice control point. I want to be able to say things. Now, 
you have, since you've purchased your new house, you've automated everything to the point that that's unnecessary because it just knows before you don't have to say anything. This is what Steve wants. But you've actually gone down that path, Steve. You've, you've built home automation around voice control. Talk a little bit about how somebody might do that disconnected from a cloud. So there's a wonderful project out there called Mycroft and there is a skill in Mycroft for home assistant and there is there will be in the future a a rewrite of this to cover all types of home automation so that it'll be able to speak to open have and all the rest of them without having individual skills. But um in the future this is a spoiler or I suppose a call for questions. Um if if people are interested we are going to be having uh one of the developer advocates from Mycroft come and join us on the show. And so uh, those sorts of questions, any kind of questions you have around uh, what is Mycroft or how, what's the privacy story around it or anything that you might think of, it'd be great if you could send those in or join us live. That'd be even better. So Chris will be joining us. Uh, we don't have the exact t- date yet, but we're thinking end of August, beginning of September. And so if we can get a good audience participation he'd love to be able to talk about all of the new stuff coming up there but absolutely getting getting back to that um there is you can go and just download the mycroft software and flash it on to a raspberry pi which is what i had done when i was in our um our apartment and you can bark all kinds of commands at it as you wish to like you can tell it to well, whatever, whatever you want, it's, it plugs into home assistant. As long as it can determine which entity you are trying to interact with, it will go ahead and make those calls. Like it's basically proxying the call on your behalf. And so that works pretty well for the people that are already invested in, you know, the Amazon or the Google ecosystems or even the Apple HomeKit ecosystem. You can definitely use your uh, your smart speakers to interact with home assistant. Although I don't have much experience setting those up. Can, is there anything else that you came across in the way of sensors and or endpoints that you think is worth calling some attention out to? Um, do we maybe want to talk a little bit about your CT clamp power monitoring thing? It seems like every time we bring that up, there's somebody else that has another follow-up question or wants to learn more about how you're monitoring power. And we've talked about it a couple of times, but can you give us the, the, the 30 second elevator pitch? What did that process look like? How did you come to want to monitor power? What did you land with and how has it been working? So one of the things that I was struggling with coming from an apartment, going into a house is where the heck is all this power being drawn from? You know, I get into a house and there's things that I didn't have to think about, like a sump pump or a radon detector or the furnace that just, you know, is on because it needs to circulate air in the house, things of that nature. So when I was getting these electrical bills, um, I was seeing that I was drawing, I don't know, 30 kilowatts a day or something like that. Like, where is all of this power coming from? So a CT clamp is just a little device that um, briefly described clamps around the hot wire of an electrical outlet. So it can be right at the outlet, although traditionally goes inside of your breaker box. Do not, do not, do not do this. If you are not comfortable and or knowledgeable with working with electricity, you know, t- touching something inside of your, your panel could be very disastrous for you. But having said that, it just clamps around the hot side. So normally inside of your breaker, you've got uh, a ground, a neutral, and a hot coming in from most places like plugs and stuff like that. So you clamp this around the, the hot wire and it's able to measure the amount of, of uh, energy that's flowing over the line. And based on that and the amount of voltage that you either tell or it senses from your provider, it's able to figure out the number of the amount of wattage that's there. So it, it can be a very useful thing for you to do. Uh, there are very basic CT clamps, which where you are the one that tells it what, what the voltage that your provider gives you. And 
they are they're pretty cheap and you can plug those into and i for like box or something like that i got the whole thing i got the ct clamp the little esp chip and the little end that you plug the ct clamp into for like seven bucks and that will get you basic power monitoring at it's not going to be hyperactive but it'll definitely get you in the ballpark of of how much you're drawing off of each line and that will give you an idea so for example we were trying to figure out um we have a we have a whirlpool tub that we inherited with this and I kind of had a suspicion that it was drawing power just sitting there doing nothing, mm. which it which it was. Um, it wasn't drawing as much as I thought it was, but it was drawing some non-minimal amount of power. Um, and so basically I just flipped that switch off after. But you would have no idea because the amount was so minuscule compared to the 30 kilowatts a day that you draw. Uh, it would have been hard for me to notice just by flipping the switch off and watching my power bill. But... When you're talking about 60 watts, that was my amplifier and, you know, whatever this was, 20 watts, and you add this up over time, you could end up saving three, four, five kilowatts a month just by having things off that don't need to be on if you're not using them. Steve, if I may ask, how does a CT clamp work if it's not actually contacting the conductors of the wire? So... Basically, there's a magnet and a coil wrapped around, like a wire wrapped around inside. And this this actually creates a magnetic field. And based on the math that I don't really understand, like if you asked me to do it by hand, I wouldn't be able to do it. But essentially, the reaction that that causes as it goes through is able to, we're able to measure the amount of, of amperage that is going through a a wire at a given time. Okay. Interesting. So you so you have all of these sensors, you have all of these components, you've assembled them. We have a automation controlling system or a central controller. So let's talk about that a little bit. There are a number of commercial offerings. So if you've ever been inside of a conference center or a lot of universities have this, um, you'll see Crestron. And Crestron is a very, very well-known, very robust automation system for doing commercial automation. In fact, um, I know of a particular engineer that works at Crestron that listens to the show and occasionally reaches out and, and chats with me a little bit. Um, so you've, if you've been inside of a conference center, you've probably seen this. And the advantage of what Crestron does is it allows you to have one central thing to tie all of the systems together. Now, Crestron is a very, very proprietary thing that requires training and a special software and licensing and all of the things um, to the point that and it's so expensive that most places that use it on a regular basis hire an in-house Crestron tech that then uh, gets certified and can do all of the things. There are open source equivalents to those that allow you to kind of tie all of this together. So, Steve, what kind of home automation central control systems have you come across and which one do you like best and why? So there's OpenHab and there's also Home Assistant as the big gorillas. There's there's mm-hmm. a bunch of other smaller ones out there um, that I've heard of. You can also use Node-RED by itself and have it kind of work as an automated automation controller. Um, the vast majority of people that I know use Node-RED inside of Home Assistant or or at least beside Home Assistant, so that they kind of work in tandem, and that works pretty well. Uh, OpenHab was not really to my liking. I tend to steer away from anything that's a, a Java monolith. There are excellent Java programs out there. But when it comes to a level of comfort, I'm much more comfortable on the Python side. Not that I've ever actually ripped open one of these things to make my own change. But I absolutely can open up the the Home Assistant stuff and read through and make some small tweaks, which I have done in the past for just debugging or whatever. So Python Python is a lot more uh, easily understood by myself, even though I did learn to program in Java. So I find that it is it can be more efficient, especially on startup time. Like when you're talking about a Java process startup or a Python process startup, the Python process wins 95% of the time, in my opinion. So there's going to be somebody out there that's furiously smashing on their keyboard talking about 
uh, how this thing they written, wrote in Java came up in point uh, two seconds, and I'm sure they're I'm sure they're out there. It has not been my experience though. Um, so I they have different approaches to the same the same problem domain, and for me, uh, when I I didn't ever get around to installing OpenHab. I just looked at the two and kind of compared them and thought, well, this is the one that I'm going to jump in with my feet. And I went with Home Assistant at the end of the day. And what have you thought about it so far? What do you think about it? I really like Home Assistant for three reasons. The first is if you have absolutely no experience with home automation at all, if you're even remotely technically inclined, you can you can run it on a Raspberry Pi. You can run it on a VM. You can install it on a spare computer. And it takes almost no effort to get it flashed. And what you arrive at is almost as if you purchased uh, an appliance, right? So if you go to the store and you bought one of those like Netgear or Seagate NASs that you can buy at Best Buy for a few hundred dollars, and you'd bring it home and you would take it out of the box and you'd plug it into your network and it gets a DHCP address and then you log into a web UI and then you can kind of click around and figure out what you want to do. To me, that's what Home Assistant is. It is an open source way that you can, if you, again, you can run it on practically anything under the sun. And if you had, if you had, even if you're not, even if you're new to Linux, even if you're listening to this and saying, I don't even know what he means by flashing on to, okay, follow their guide and it'll give you a, a single line command, or you can go download a tool that will let you flash Home Assistant onto an SD card. You stick it into a Pi, you plug it in and just wait, browse to the IP address it gives you, and there's a web uh, console or a, a, you know a web interface. Once you get into the web interface, I find Home Assistant to be absolutely excellent at holding your hand through setup things. So, for example, in my case, I brought it online. I never told it anything about any of my home automation that was on my network. It went out and said, "Hey, I see you have Lutron lights. Would you like to add that? Yes. Hey, I see you have access cameras. Would you like to add that? Yes. Hey, I see you have a Volumio instance. Would you like to add that? Yes." In fact, it was so easy and so straightforward and took so little time, and I really didn't actually configure anything. I just essentially agreed that I wanted it to do all those things. Prior to us sitting down to record the show, Steve was saying, how can you have something in production that isn't backed up? And I said, well, I didn't really didn't really take any time. Like, if it went away tomorrow, I could set it back up in, like, 10 minutes or less. And part of that is because I don't have it dialed in as much as Steve has. But I think a big part of that is credit given to the developers of Home Assistant that it does such a good job of setting its own self up basically unattended. Um, and so I think that's really good. The other thing I think they have they have almost perfected a mobile interface. And so my wife who has very little interest in configuring custom servers and, you know, specifying a bunch of esoteric incantations in order to get connected, finds Home Assistant to be super easy. She goes to the, she goes to Play Store, she downloads Home Assistant, she signs in with username and password, she's got control of the house. And it's that simple. Um, and so for all of those reasons, I really, really like Home Assistant. The other thing, uh, the third reason is I think they do an excellent job at reaching out to the community and vendors that make the components and things that work with Home Assistant so that you can just go to Amazon and buy a list of parts, or you can go to your favorite automation place and order a bunch of things and they're all going to work with Home Assistant. It also has a lot of momentum behind it. Like if you just go and search a part and then Home Assistant, generally speaking, someone will have tried and or made an opinion about it, whether it works or not or or whatever. Uh, that's a different story. But someone will have asked the question and gotten a response at some point. Uh, I, I apparently am never a trailblazer, even though I've been use using Home Assistant for quite a long time. Um, I have asked a few questions in the forum, but generally speaking, they're more like, hey, I've, I'm trying to do this ridiculous thing. Can somebody help me with that? As opposed to, um, here's this brand new device that I wanted to know if it's supported. Is there anything in the way of... Uh what Home Assistant can talk to. So, for example, we talked a little bit about Z-Wave. We talked a little bit about Zigbee. You mentioned Wi-Fi. And I, if, if I can, I want to circle back to that a little bit. How, what does that mean exactly? Wi-Fi being just a way to get wirelessly connected to a network. It's not really a communications protocol so far in as, you know, Home Assistant talks to this thing. 
over Wi-Fi, might use Wi-Fi, but there's likely something there underneath, or do I misunderstand? No, that's generally the case. There's a couple of things that I guess Home Assistant would talk directly to, um, and it's getting more and more the case. So, for example, Tasmoda that I've mentioned before, or ESP Home, Home Assistant can talk directly to those things now because each one of those have an API that's exposed over Wi-Fi. At the same time, there are other protocols that will help assist this. So, for example, there's the MQTT protocol. Um, And basically, this is essentially, you can think of this like a a message board. So you've got a topic, and then anybody can go post a a response on the topic. And that response, depending on how you have it set up, will just stay there until it's replaced by something else. So it becomes very handy because it helps things like remember the last state that they were in or any number of things. And essentially, most of the IoT devices, let me back up, a good portion of the the IoT devices, even if they're proprietary, speak MQTT. That's how we're using the Roomba. Like I did no modification to the Roomba. It just turned out that if you do enough research, you can find good modern Roombas that are sold at Costco or wherever that speak MQTT. And, you know, someone has figured out how to make that connection happen. Uh, So I wanted to put a plug out there for the, the integration who has actually made the Roomba stuff happen. Uh, It has been a big help. I, I definitely went and, you know, hunted him up and said, Hey, do you have like a, a buy me a coffee link or whatever? And, they did, and so I definitely support those when I can. Um, I'm trying to remember what what it's called right off the top of my head, but I'm I'm missing it right now. But there are lots of integrations out there that the community will provide. If the device supports MQTT, someone will have figured out how to get it there, unless it was really locked down and proprietary. So to be clear, Roomba, which is would be you know, kind of a cloud-based thing originally, you're saying that used correctly, you can actually do this completely offline and without a lot of hassle. Yep. It was no problem at all to to do this. There was a little bit of configuration in there. Um, The initial setup, you did need to use the the Roomba app because you had to... um, you had to know which room you were sending it to. And what happens is because it's just a bunch of numbers, it's like, hey, room number 5,302. Like you have to be able to make that one-time translation for Home Assistant. Like, hey, that's the dining room um, when it goes. And the only the only practical way to do that is from the app because, you know, you push the button says, you know, hey, go do my dining room. And then it spits out the MQT. Like you can watch the MQTT command and then you're just like, hey, Home Assistant, that was the one that goes to the dining room, right? But after that initial setup, um, it's all done on Home Assistant without the internet. You've mentioned Node-RED. You've said that it could be used independently of Home Assistant. You've said that a lot of people will use it inside of Home Assistant. Steve, for somebody who's not heard of it before or is is hearing this for the first time, what is Node-RED and how does it work? Well, I'll ask you, what do you know about Home? What do you know about Node-RED? So uh, the, my first introduction to Node-RED was actually at your house. And when I, I think I asked something along the lines of, hey, Steve, how does your office know that you're in there? And, and, and how did you set up all of that automation? Because you had it set up very cleverly so that if you are in the middle of a meeting, it does all sorts of crazy things. It turns on a light to let your family know not to disturb you. If you leave your office, it automatically powers everything down for you inside of there. When you come in, it turns everything back on. And it was just very fascinating and interesting to me. And you said, well, here, let me show you. And so you browse to a, a, a local web UI. And there, instead of my home assistant, where I would have a list of automations. And if I clicked into them, it would have one field for conditions. And then it would have one field for triggers and it would have one field for actions. And it's, it's very linear in that way. Yours had this beautiful diagram of essentially what I would almost call a flow chart where you can see this thing happens here. It branches out. It does this or this. If we do this, it'll do this, this, or this. If we go this other way, it does this, this, and this. And it kind of almost trees out or branches out your decisions and what action is taken in each one of those at each one of those points. Yep, you pretty much hit the nail on the head with that. Node Red is an automation platform that is its own it's completely 
independent. It's just that somebody has taken the time to integrate it with Home Assistant. And the reason why it's called Node is that every every little piece on the flowchart is called a node. And you can have nodes from Home Assistant, which talk to like API and know the the services and the states of things as as Home Assistant knows them. But you can also have nodes that do functions like you can put your own JavaScript functions in there, or you can have MQTT nodes or HTTP requests or or WebSockets. Like this thing has nodes for ridiculous number of things. So it can stand completely alone. And there are lots of people that had node red before they came to Home Assistant and they just they're using Home Assistant as an integration point and node red just pull like basically pulls the information out of Home Assistant and treats it like another endpoint. So there's lots of ways to use it. Uh, and I like it a lot because it's really easy to visually debug what is happening because one of the neat, really neat things about it is every time, so you have a node and the node you connect via a little uh, clicking and dragging a little line between them. And every time that a node is hit, the light, there's a little light underneath of it that will be red or green and it says off or on or some other status like light turned on at and it gives you a date and a time. If you've got a timer, for example, a trigger that has to wait seven minutes, the, the light will be blue as the timer is ticking down. And then when it finishes, it turns a different color. So you can actually watch the, I'm going to call them packets for lack of a better way. You can actually watch the packets run through the flow and what happens in real time. Not to mention they have what's called a debug node so that you can pipe any output from all of the nodes into debug node and it'll show you, you know, in a JSON-esque format, what the response, like, what did you send and what response did you get and, and all those sorts of things. And it, it's, it, for me, this was, I looked at this and I never looked back. I did some, I did, I think I have one or two native Home Assistant automations that I just like, I set it and like, it's been working for, I don't know, I want to say about four years at this point and I never went back to it. When they break, I'll probably convert them. But after I saw Node Red, I never went back. That is absolutely awesome, Steve. And to be clear, I think we could we could drag on and talk about home automation probably indefinitely. There's so much here to cover. And I think really where we need to leave it, because we're out of time yet again, I think where we need to leave it, Steve, is if you're interested in this, pick one thing to get started with. Pick lights, pick security. Pick something, pick one thing, pick the controller for, you know, and start with with Hasio and, and get Home Assistant flashed onto a Pi or spun up in a VM and start there and then work your way back. What things would be useful to you to automate and just start playing with it? And I think the more you dig into it, the more you're going to discover, the more you discover, the more you will end up doing. And that that's really kind of the best advice that I have to get started. Steve, as we kind of wind down this hour, any closing thoughts? Uh, it is a an addictive hobby that can run away with you if you're not careful. <laughs> and so make sure to budget appropriately and make sure to have this conversation with your spouse, what you're spending and what you're prioritizing. Your money is where your heart is, all that, those kinds of things. Hey, the music in our ears, it means we're out of time. Thank you for joining us. We invite you to continue to engage with the show. You can do that 24-7 over podcast.asknoahshow.com. You can follow us on Twitter at AskNoahShow. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. We record this podcast every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. We invite you to join us live at AskNoahShow.com. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. We'll see you here at AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week. Have a good week.